This episode is sponsored by Hired.com. Every week on Hired, they run an auction where over a 1,000 tech companies in San Francisco, New York, and L.A. bid on iOS developers, providing them with salary and equity up front. The average iOS developer gets an average of 5 to 15 introductory offers and an average salary offer of $130,000 a year. Users can either accept an offer and go right into interviewing with the company or deny them without any continuing obligations. It's totally free for users, and when you're hired, they also give you a $2,000 signing bonus as a thank you for using them. But if you use the iFreaks link, you'll get a $4,000 bonus instead. Finally, if you're not looking for a job but know someone who is, you can refer them to Hired and get a $1,337 bonus if they accept the job. Go sign up at Hired.com slash iFreaks. Hey, everybody, and welcome to episode 118 of the iFreaks show. This week on our panel, we have Andrew Madsen. Hello from Salt Lake City. I'm Charles Max Wood, also from Salt Lake City. Uh, we have a couple of guests. We have Greg Heo. We also have Mick Pringle. Hello. And Ray Wenderlich. Hello from Virginia. Do you gentlemen want to introduce yourselves? Sure. Uh, my name is Ray Wenderlich, and I'm the editor-in-chief of a popular iPhone programming blog, and I work with Mick and Greg. I'm Mick Pringle. As Ray said, I work with Ray, or for Ray, making video tutorials, written tutorials. Um, I manage a team of writers as well that we put out all the iOS related content and then I do the RayWendlick.com podcast. Hey, my name is Greg Hugh and I also work with Ray and Mick and I work on video tutorials and editing for the site. Awesome. So how did you get started with this? The blog started back around 2009 timeframe. I had previously, I'd been working at Electronic Arts, a game company for those of you who don't know it. And it was a really cool job. I'm a really into games and geeky stuff, and everybody there was too. Um, we would play board games at launch, talk about games all the time. I was working on a cool project, Warhammer Online. But I just got in there my life at 50, and we had always wanted to start a business. And I thought that would be a good time before kids come along and it becomes a little more difficult. So we decided, what could I do? And iPhone programming was just becoming hot at the time, so I decided to get into that, make some apps. And so I started out as an indie iPhone developer, making my own apps. And as I was doing that, I started a blog to teach people different things I was learning along the way. And it started to become popular. And what brought about the tutorial team was I used to just write whatever I felt like writing. And I noticed, you know, used what I was learning making apps. And then I noticed that some of my posts were more popular than others. And I was like, how can I get more popular posts? And I'm like, well, just let people vote on what they wanted. And of course, then people would vote on things I hadn't played around with yet. So then it became a lot more work because I had to learn it and then write about it rather than just writing about whatever I happened to be doing. And it became to the point where I couldn't keep up the schedule I'd set for myself of one post a week. So then I put out a call for other people to help me write tutorials so we could keep the tutorial schedule going at that quick rate. And it just kind of grew from there. Some people on the team said, hey, let's write a book. So we started doing that. And then later down the road, we got into video tutorials, and it just sort of grown over time. Cool. So when did you make the decision to move into, like, tutorials and things like that? For a long time, I, it was primarily I was just making apps as an indie iPhone developer, and the blog was just kind of a side project for fun. And I still felt that way until we started making books. We made our first book, and it did pretty well. And then we did our second book, and it did even better. And about that point, it got to the point where I was making about maybe even a little bit more money on books than I was on my apps. And so my whole philosophy of business is do whatever's working. And since that was doing well, I decided to shift more of my focus onto that. And these days, my focus is really 100% on the blog and related things and not much on apps anymore. Seems like you've got a pretty big team now. You explained that uh, you have some people are working full time, but then you've got a, a, a a large pool of people that write for the site that are just part-time. And I, I actually know a couple of people that have written for you. I wonder how you find people because you've got tutorials about all kinds of different things. It's not, um, it seems like you kind of early on, a lot of your stuff was game focused, but now um, there's a really broad range of stuff you talk about and you've found experts on all these topics. How, how have you done that? Yeah, definitely. We have about a hundred people on our tutorial team right now. And the way I found people was at the very beginning, I just put a blog post out, hey, who's interested in joining and got a small team together. 
And then different people would email me saying, hey, I'd like to contribute or I meet people at conferences or some people on the team would know other people they work with or friends that they would recommend the site to. And generally people just email me and they say, hey, I'm interested in joining the team. Tell me a little bit about themselves. And these days we've gotten a little more formal with things. It used to be if, if people looked like they knew what they were talking about, they could join the team. These days we have a tryout for each of the different sub teams we have that people have to pass before they can write for the site. That's interesting. It seems like uh, at this point you're you're big enough that writing for your site is kind of a big deal. It's something people want to, want to do. And I certainly appreciate the level of, um, I don't know how you'd say this, but like I was reading a tutorial you have up there about using iBeacons, and that's not something that's really some you know something for a beginner to jump into. So you had to find somebody who actually knew what they were talking about that could figure that out and write a good good tutorial. Um, but, which actually kind of brings up something that seems really hard to me, which is you've got, you said you've got about a hundred people. How do you sort of keep them all together so that the quality and the tone and everything of the content on the site stays high? Because I, I've noticed that it's very consistent. Yeah, that's a good point. And it's important to us as well to keep the quality high because the way I see it, everybody who's making apps or doing anything with technology is very busy, right? And you don't have a lot of learning time necessarily. And so when you do want to spend time learning something, you want to make sure whatever you're doing works and has accurate technical information. So we, we want to make sure our tutorials are all really high quality for everybody. And the way we do that and keep everybody on the same page is we have a tutorial team guide, which has step-by-step instructions on how to write a tutorial and kind of all the mistakes that I've made through the years that I've noticed when I wrote bad tutorials or messed up or I've seen other people write some things that could be improved. I put them all in the guide and then everybody can learn from that when they write tutorials. And in addition to that, we have three phases of editing that every tutorial goes through. It starts out with a technical editor and then it goes through a English language editor who's a non-technical person but just really great at catching grammar, spelling errors, and so on. And then we have a final pass editor who's usually a, one of the most experienced people on the site who looks over it one last time to catch everything. And by the end, the goal is to have it be 100% working, really polished, and, and good for everybody to go through. So I'm working right now on a tutorial. My, my expertise is much more on the server side, on Ruby on Rails, and I'm getting into AngularJS. But I'm, I'm working on a tutorial there. So if I'm working on a tutorial, what kinds of things would you recommend that I make sure that I do or don't do while writing the tutorial? Sure. The first thing is we always like to do the sample project first. Usually when you do the sample project as you write, the tutorial doesn't flow as well. And then we have a whole tutorial team guide with tons of different tips and tricks to watch out for along the way. Here's a couple tips. It's important to sometimes, before you get into doing things, cover the reference behind what's going on. But in our opinion, it's better to put the reference sections and the, the theory sections right before when you need it versus a huge theory before you get into doing anything. In other words, people want to learn just in time so they can see things working. And the second, another tip I'd suggest is you always want to have lots of small build and run steps. You don't want to have a huge block of code and then several more. And then at the very end of the tutorial, it says, okay, now good luck, try it. Because if there's a mistake somewhere along the way, the user won't know what went wrong. Helps them learn a little bit better. Illustrations, screenshots, very important to help people understand what's going on. And um, you always need to include every single line of code that goes in. You can't skip something because you think it's easy or just describe it in paragraph. Always have a code block right there so people can just kind of, when they see a code block, they know they have to do something and put it in. And there's a, there's a ton more tips like this, but it's just little things like that we've learned over the years that seem to make good tutorials. I'm curious because I've, I've run into this a little bit where I want to get people to work in code very quickly so that they can experience it and dig into it and see what's there. But in some cases, there's some concept or some code that's going to look like magic uh, while I explain, okay, first we're going to get into what a data model does and is, and then we're going to get into controllers or whatever, you know, but in order for them to see a full-on working project, they need those other pieces. And so a lot of times I have them generate it or create it, and then I kind of hand wave over it and say, we'll get to that later. How, how do you do that without frustrating people? Yeah, that's, that's a good question. I think it's a common problem, especially for beginner-level tutorials, because there's so many prerequisite concepts that kind of all go together. One thing that works for us is 
the more tutorials you have, you can start linking to things together. Mm -hmm. So if you were to, in your example, make a series of things and say, look, for now, all you need to know is this, ABC. That's some kind of a very simplified example of it. And then if you want to learn more, check out this other tutorial down the road is one way of doing it. On our side, at least, we can have starter projects where we can say, here is the shell of an app. For example, if the app is about core data and modeling your data, then you don't necessarily have to say, start a new project, open the storyboard, and add all of these view elements to it. You can just say, I've already made this starter project. It's got a few views in there and some text labels. Now let's just focus on the core data part, for example. And then sort of giving people a starting point and saying not to worry about all that stuff that we're not going to cover and just to focus on whatever the topic of your tutorial is is also a, something that we do a lot. Yeah, I'd suggest as well that depending on how much you want your, you're aiming to cover in your tutorial, if, if you start hitting like huge areas of theory because you're introducing all these different concepts, it might be worth considering pulling them out into separate tutorials and maybe make a, a, a series. We don't tend to do it as much now, but we quite often previously used to have like two and three part series so that you could split up those pieces and introduce them at a pace where the reader was comfortable rather than kind of like you say, you know, it almost appear like magic and then maybe get on to explaining it at some point. Or if you're conscious about word count and things uh, and keeping the reader interested, then you might actually not give as thorough explanation of a concept as you would want to. But by pulling that out into separate tutorials, linking them all together as a series, you can actually do that and do it quite nicely. Yeah, that makes sense. Ray, you mentioned that you didn't really consider the site the the main thing you did until you started working on books. And I'm sort of interested in in the books. What made you decide to start writing books as opposed to just the tutorials on the site? A couple of people, like readers of the blog, had suggested that I work on a book. I never really had considered it. I guess the first time I got involved with working on a book was Rod Strugo, who now works at Big Nerd Ranch. He was working on a book called Learning Cocos 2D. And he was looking for a co-author to work with him on the book. And so he knew about me from my blog because, like you said, back in the day, I used to write a lot of Cocos 2D tutorials, which is a game framework, open source game framework. So I started working on the book with Rod, and that was through a traditional publisher. And then some of the people on the tutorial team, we were writing a bunch of tutorials on iOS 5 back at the time. And they said, you know what? There's a lot of stuff in iOS 5 we should team up and write a book about all this. And I thought, hey, that sounds like a cool idea. So that was the first book that we did that was self-published. I think it was just five or six of us at that time working on that book. Do you have thoughts as to when it makes sense to go traditional publisher versus self-publishing? Traditional publishers aren't a very good deal for technical writers. As a, On a traditional publisher, you get maybe 12 to 16% royalties on a book, mm-hmm. which usually, unless your book is very popular, doesn't earn you much at all. And so most people, I think, who write for a traditional publisher just do it for exposure, getting their name out there, the experience of writing a book, etc. I certainly didn't make much money at all on the Learning Cocos 2D book. But you can make money doing self-publishing, and that's one of the goals of my website. When we self-publish books and people on my site contribute to the books, we give 50% royalties to the authors. And we also, there's some people on the team who are tech editors who can get royalties by doing that and so on. And you can make money doing that. There's a guy on our team, in fact, who makes a full-time living just contributing to books. And I'm talking about a pretty good full-time living also. And I want lots of people like that on our team. Yeah, that sounds a lot like the pragmatic programmers business model, I think their authors get somewhere close to 50%. Yeah. Yeah, I think it is. I think they are the one exception, the pragmatic programmers. Yep. So do you actually sell printed copies of your books then, or are they all eBooks? We do. We sell both printed and electronic copies. Most people buy them through our site. You can buy a bundle of both the print and the PDF on our site, and we also sell it on Amazon.com. What's the difference in sort of audience for the online tutorials in the books, or, or why why do people buy the books when you've got so much great stuff on the site? Yeah, we do have a lot of free stuff on our site, but I think of, and it's good stuff, but I think of the books as like the premium stuff. That's where we, you know, we try to make the tutorials on our site good, of course, but we really put a lot of effort into our books. So the written tutorials on the site are different than the ones that are in the books. The books are more of a cohesive unit. As an example, like we have this book, iOS Games by Tutorials, And 
it walks you through the process of making five complete games from scratch using SpriteKit. Versus on our website, we have a whole lot of little tutorials that show different aspects of SpriteKit, but nothing that shows you, like, from start to finish, everything you'd want to know about SpriteKit. Yeah, like Mick was saying, sometimes we have two-part, three-part series on the website, but then in the book, you can just go so much more in-depth and cover a topic sort of from end-to-end. And then since we've also started doing the more single-topic books, like a book on core data, a book on animations, you can really explore the topic more than you could even in a you know two- or three-part tutorial just on the website. We've also got these uh, starter kits. What are those exactly? The starter kits, that was actually something we did more of a while ago. Sometimes people want to know how to make a particular type of game. Like they might know Sprite Kit, but they might want to know, well, how can I make a beat-em-up game with Sprite Kit or a platformer game? Because there's certain programming techniques to make those types of games. And that's where the starter kits come in. We have three of them right now. We have a space game starter kit, beat-em-up game starter kit, and a platformer game starter kit. And they just show you how to make a game, a specific type of game, and learning the programming techniques along the way. They're not as popular as our other books. Um, they're kind of more minor things. Okay, yeah, I just I, I, I saw those, but I also know that Jake wrote one of those starter kits, and I've talked to him about it a little bit before, so I was kind of curious about them. Um, one thing I've noticed in looking through the site, I've, I've just as we've been talking, been looking at a lot of your tutorials, and I noticed that you have you seem to have pretty much completely transitioned to Swift. So I'm I'm I have a hard time finding any Objective C stuff at all if if it's even still there. What was your thinking behind making that transition so quickly and so completely? And I'm also kind of curious about uh, challenges with doing that. Yeah, we shifted very quickly over to Swift. I was at, I remember being watching the keynote at WWDC a couple years ago when they announced Swift. And I was like, oh man, it's going to be a lot of work because everything, we had tons of tutorials at that time and they were all in Objective-C. All our books were in Objective-C. I'm like, how are we going to deal with this? But I knew we had to switch to Swift because, as you guys recall, the excitement level about Swift was insane. And all our readers wanted was Swift. And I tend to go by what our readers want. And we don't have the resources being a small company. I mean, the ideal thing, right, would be to make all our tutorials in both Objective-C and Swift. But that's not realistic with the size of our company. So we decided to go with Swift. And I think it's been the right decision for us. People have been really liking the Swift content. There's a few people who are like, uh, I, I miss Objective-C tutorials, but I think most people are happy with it. As for how we managed it, Greg was actually the update team lead, and he was kind of instrumental in helping us make a new team to switch all the tutorials over to Swift in a short period of time. So maybe, Greg, can you tell about that a little bit? Yeah, it was tough working through the very early betas because the difference in beta 1 through to beta 5 or 6 or whatever it was last year was so huge and we had to keep on top of the language. But the idea was that we would get the most popular tutorials. I mean, we kind of kind of ran a parallel track where we said, all right, new tutorials are going to be in Swift. Let's start those through the pipeline. But we had this massive archive of really good tutorials and we figured, why not just start transitioning some of the some of those over to Swift over time? So that was my project over the summer. Not me personally, but I was putting a team together to say, let's get these tutorials. And a lot of the contents, the diagrams, a lot of the theory can stay the same. But then let's start transitioning that over and converting the projects over to Swift and then updating the text where needed. And so a lot of the tutorials on our site got a sort of Swift revamp over the summer and over the past year. And then most of the challenge has been just to keep that up to date. Because as Ray said, we like to keep the content on the site up to date. And Swift has been in such heavy development over the last year that it's definitely been a challenge. But um, I think I think like Charles was saying, I forget who it was, about making sure that the content on the site is always up to date and works. And as Ray mentioned, because our readers are sort of time sensitive, they want to make sure that they can build the project and have it working. So that's definitely been the challenge over the years keeping up with the changes to Swift and making sure the tutorials on the site follow it. But that was the strategy that we had because we did have such a big bucket of content that we could work with and slowly moving that over to Swift while also in parallel saying, all right, all the new tutorials going forward will be in Swift. And then that gave us a really good bundle of content to have ready when the GM came out and then over the past year. I'm, I'm kind of curious as you do this, I'm sure that you, uh, I'm going to use a developer term on this because I'm not sure, I guess an error in the, or an errata, I don't know, uh, a bug <laughs> in the tutorial, so to speak. What do you do for support for those? We've shifted over the years, but our recent 
thing is when you sign up to write a tutorial on our site, you agree to kind of maintain it for six months. So if a new version of Swift comes out during that time or whatever, you'll go ahead and update it. Or if you notice any comments from readers saying, hey, there's a bug here, uh, you go ahead and fix that. And, you know, now it's not perfect. You know, we have a large team and some members might not remember to always check, but our goal is to do that. And then after six months, we periodically go back, like Greg was saying, and we have different people go ahead and update our older tutorials for new versions of iOS or whatever else has changed. We do have forums on the site as well. And so every post and every video gets a topic automatically on the forums for people to comment. And then we have the all the readers who chime in and say, hey, this didn't work or this didn't build or I found a different way to do this. So it's always great to get the feedback from the readers. And then if they report bugs, we can go in and um, fix the projects or fix the tutorials as uh, as time goes on. Yeah, I ran into an issue and I went on the forum. I had a little bit of trouble using it, but maybe we can talk about that offline. Sure. So uh, I'm also really curious, have you looked at branching out maybe into other technologies or are you super focused on iOS? We are, actually. We just recently changed the way we did things. We used to have one massive tutorial team that wrote primarily about iOS, but we had a little bit of OSX stuff, a little bit of Arduino stuff, some Unity stuff, and other game technologies. And it got to be too much. Like We felt like we couldn't focus on other things because our team was too big. So now we've shifted so we have different teams for different technologies. We now have an iOS team. That's the one that Mick runs. We have a Swift language team. Not like programming with Cocoa APIs, but the actual language. That's Greg and soon be shifting to Janie Clayton on that one. And we also have a OSX team with by Sam Davies and the Android team also by Sam Davies. And then we have a couple game groups too, like Unity Sprite Kit uh, and Unreal Engine, which will be starting later on. And an, also an article team, which is kind of like non-tutorials for more advanced people. And a lot of these teams are just starting, so there's not a lot out yet, but you'll see a lot of new stuff in those different areas coming out in the coming months. One other thing that I've uh, run into in you know, my forays into doing tutorials is that it seems to be a lot easier to sell introductory tutorials. So, you know, how to get started with iOS, or in my case, how to get started with Ruby on Rails. Um, when you get into more advanced areas, I find that it's harder to either find the market or get them to, you know, buy your tutorial depending on what it is. Have you found this as well? And how do you kind of compensate for that when you get into more advanced topics? Yeah, that's definitely the case. The best-selling book on our site is The iOS Apprentice, which is a book for complete beginners. And just like you said, right, there's more people who are trying to get into something than people who stick around long enough to become an advanced developer looking for a more advanced book. Now, that said, we also have some more advanced books, too. We have our iOS by tutorial series, and the way that works is every year we write a book on all basically all the new stuff that comes out that year at WWDC. Like, we have a new one, iOS 9 by tutorials, talks about stack views, search APIs, all the other new stuff that comes out. Um, so I would consider that not a beginner book. It's more for people who have already been around in iOS and just want to catch up to date on the good stuff. And... I, maybe it's because we've done this a while and we do this every year. People are used to it and they like it and they keep coming back, but that seems to do pretty well too. Another more advanced book we have, I would say, is, well, arguably, is one that Mick was a Final Pass editor on, which is WatchKit by Tutorials. I don't think, I could chime in if anyone disagrees, but I think most people who are making WatchKit apps these days already have an iOS background and it's a little bit of a smaller audience of people who want to make watch apps than iOS apps in general. And so that book, you know, it doesn't sell as much as our more beginner books, but it's still, I would say, is worth the time and effort that it takes to put together the book for us. Even when we're putting these books together, though, like the first thing that we do once we've got the team of authors together is to come up with the, the content for the chapters. As Ray said uh, before, you know, this summer we've been working on iOS 9 tutorials, and there was a huge amount that came out in iOS 9, but because of the type of release it was, a lot of it was niche, which is kind of the point that you were getting at, like trying to sell the, the harder, more niche stuff. So we sit down with the authors and, and we kind of try and a apply a bit of common sense and judgment to, you know, out of all these concepts that we could write about, which ones are going to be the most popular? And then ultimately those will be the ones that go into the book. 
So there will be stuff in iOS 9, as with the previous releases, that might have been a really cool bit of tech, but didn't make it into the book because it would only apply to a very small percentage of the audience. Yeah, that makes sense. The other question I have is, do you wait to make some of these, like the iOS games or platformer games or beat-em-up game starter kits, do you wait on those until somebody's asking for them? Or do you, I mean, how do you figure out that that's what your audience is going to buy? Sometimes We've done it in different ways. Sometimes people just email us asking for different things, and we kind of know that people want that when we have time to do it. If we're thinking of something and we're not sure or we have a couple ideas, we're not sure what would be the best. Sometimes we put a poll up on our site and we say, hey, everybody vote and see what you'll like. For example, Matthias Hollemans, the guy who wrote The iOS Apprentice, he wanted to write a new book and he had a couple different ideas and we put some a poll up and iOS app architecture was the one that ended up winning hugely compared to the others. We might not have guessed that if we hadn't had a poll. So I think sometimes asking your audience can really help. Ray, I want to switching topics a little bit. I know you did a big developer conference this year and you're working on, I think I saw that tickets are on sale for next year's. And I've heard from a few people that went and they seem to really like it. Um, and I, I assume that that was the first time you've ever put, put on a conference like that. So I'm kind of curious about, uh, sort of the background for that. What made you decide to do a conference with a lot of other iOS conferences already out there? And then you could sort of talk about how that all came together. It seems like a big undertaking. Sure. Yeah, definitely. Uh, what happened is, like many things that we do on our site, somebody on the team said, hey, Ray, we should run an iPhone conference. And in the spur of the moment, I got caught up in the excitement and I was like, yeah, let's do that. Not realizing at all how much work was involved in putting this together. So yeah, somebody suggested it. And so I, I kind of got the ball rolling and it was a huge amount of work. But I think it was really worth it because people seemed to really like it. It got really great reviews and we all had a really good time meeting our readers and meeting each other as a team. And I think what makes our conference different than a lot of the other iPhone conferences out there is we really have, just like our site is, we have the focus on hands-on tutorials. It's not like a normal conference where you watch a talk and there's a bunch of slides and, and you kind of take some notes and maybe come back to it later. In RW DevCon, there's like five minutes of slides or something like that. And then you go straight into it follow along demo where the instructor actually live codes in front of you and you follow along with him. And by the end of the demo, you have the same project that the instructor has. And after you go through with the instructor, then you go through and practice something on your own. And the idea is that by the end of the session, you actually walk away with a new skill that you can actually start using. And the other difference is since we are used to working together on a tutorial team, the conference is very coordinated top down at a traditional conference. The way it works is there's like a call for speakers. People submit their talk ideas and, and the organizer will just like accept different ones. Uh, and then it's, it's kind of random in the end because it's whatever people happen to suggest as their talk ideas. Which is, you know, that's good, but we want to do things a little bit differently. And so what we do is we put a poll out to everyone who's attending the conference. We say, hey, what do you guys want this year? And then they come up with different tutorial ideas and we get the most popular ones. And then we farm out the topic ideas based on who on our team has the most experience with them. And that way we are guaranteed to have a coordinated set of topics that everybody really wants. And we can also do cool things like have two sessions that are related where one session is a prerequisite to another session. And then the other difference that we do uh, is we have this thing called inspiration talks because I've noticed I used to give a lot of in-person workshops at other conferences, like some conferences have pre-conference uh, workshop days, and I used to do a lot of those. And whenever I gave one of those, I'd noticed that in the afternoon, people started uh, getting tired and not really working as hard because there's so much hands-on stuff. So in the afternoon, we recognize that and we switch over to sort of non-technical we call them inspiration talks and the idea is that they're just new ideas different ways of looking at things that might spur you on and inspire you to leave the conference with a new idea or change your life in a little bit of uh, a way and you can see some of those examples on our website if you want to see what i mean but yeah um, it, the conference went great it was a ton of work i i wasn't sure if i was going to do it again at first because of how much work it was and the conference really isn't a money maker for us it's uh, we'd spend all the money on the conference back on uh, the attendees to make it a nice experience. But in the end, people liked it so much that we just felt like we had to do it again. Greg, it was my, were, yeah, I was going to ask if you, were, if you were involved, if you guys both went. 
Yeah, yeah so, I gave a yeah. session. Mick gave a session too, and I think we actually coordinated on some of them. So, for example, we had someone do a talk on uh, app extensions last year, and then I followed that up with a talk on WatchKit, and then Mick did like WatchKit Part Two. So it's really was saying it was really nice because we could coordinate the topics and say and talk to each other and say, "Oh, you're going to cover this and that in the app extensions," which means I don't have to talk about it in WatchKit and so on. So it was really cool to be able to to do that. And as Ray mentioned, just to meet everybody, all the readers who are like, you know, they read your stuff or they watch the videos that you're in and they recognize you. And then the team, I forget, Ray, how many team members did we have there? I think you had the number earlier. Yeah, we had 39 members from the site there, which was our biggest get together ever. It was amazing. So just working, I know Ray has worked together with some people that for years and years that he had never met. And it was the same for me. So it was just a really, really great to be able to meet everyone too. So how many people were at the conference? Was it just the 39 or were there more people? No, we had 180 total people at the mm-hmm. conference. 39 of those were com. No, team members, people who write for the site. Oh, at least I that's see. what I understood. Exactly. Yeah, I think that's one of the advantages of the conference as well, because you've got all these people that are regular readers of the site, so they know these people by name, and then you see that these, pe- these same people whose tutorials you are familiar with and use as a resource are actually then putting on the hands-on sessions that in the format that Ray explained. So you've got that consistency and familiarity between the site and the people giving the talks at the conference as well. Yeah, it sounds like a lot of fun. It's, I don't know about you guys, but for me, I'd, li- I'd like to go to, you know, at least one conference a year. That's probably mostly all I have the budget for, but I'm going to think about going because it does sound like a lot of fun and a few other people I know are going. And so on sort of a philosophical level, I'm curious for all three of you, but I think especially for Mick and Greg, I'm curious to know what you get out of uh, working for or working on the Ray Wenderlich site and working on the tutorials and books. And obviously, it's something you guys chose to do. You didn't exactly just fall into it. And so I'd like to hear about that. For me, it's an opportunity to learn new stuff that you wouldn't necessarily do in, in like, a, say, a standard day job. So I, I first started working with Ray as a tech editor. So that's that first stage in editing a tutorial part-time, maybe doing like one or two a month. But because you don't get to pick the topics you just assigned, you know, you get to learn some wildly different. I mean, the first one I ever did was like making music for a game. And I was neither a musician nor a game maker. So, you know, that was really interesting. And, you know, I had some other unusual ones along the way. But, I mean, that was the biggest draw at the time. And then it kind of just spiraled from there. The more we do, the more you learn. The more you learn, the more you can give back. And, and it, you know, you just get in that circle. Yeah, I really enjoy the learning aspect of the job because, like they say, the best way to learn something is to explain it to someone else. And like Mick said, there's just such a diversity of topics. And um, I also, Mick and I, I think, started on the same day. Also, I was also a tech editor way back. And I was getting a lot of game tutorials to start. And I've never really, I've never worked on game programming or anything like that before. But just doing the tech editing for that, you just get exposed to so many different topics. And sometimes it's like, oh, I'm, I happen to be working, like when I was doing freelance work, I'm working on this project that happens to use a lot of table views. And then I would get a tutorial on table views to edit. And it just really meshes really well because that's what you do in your job is the same thing that you're doing for the editing side. And then for working on tutorials, it's kind of a similar thing. You really have to do a lot of research and work on an app and check out the code and then by the time you've written out the whole outline for a tutorial or you've written the whole plan for a video series, you really know the topic well. And then you can, because you have to know it well enough to present to a beginner. And I think teaching something to a beginner audience is a really good way just to um, solidify your own knowledge in it. I mean, another advantage that really drew me, so I was doing work previous to this where, you know, we, we were building apps that had to support generation old devices. We had to go back you know, iOS 5, iOS 6. So we can adopt a lot of the new technologies, whereas it's the exact opposite to that, sort of working for the site and working for eight. You're on the bleeding edge. I started in November last year, and on the Monday, like, I sat down with Ray. We had a hangout, and we were discussing what I was going to be doing up until Christmas. And then Apple shipped the first beta of WatchKit on the Tuesday, and then I had another hangout with Ray because it's like, right, that whole plan we made yesterday, that's out the window now. And from now until Christmas, you're going to be working on WatchKit. And there is no way I would have been exposed 
to watch Kit and Swift at that point in the job that I had previously. And I think it's probably a lot of, it's like that for a lot of people who are either contractors or working enterprise and that kind of thing, because, you know, you've got legacy apps to support. You've got, you know, bigger audiences that use your apps that you need to keep servicing. So you can't always be on the bleeding edge, but because we don't have that, like our audience comes to us expecting us to teach them the bleeding edge stuff, which, which is really good. That was a very fun week in November, Mick. I remember that well. I think Mick wrote a small watch app like on Tuesday night, sent it to me on Wednesday, and I wrote a tutorial. Because Mick is in the UK, we have that time zone advantage. So I wrote the tutorial on Wednesday, sent it to Mick. He woke up in the morning on Thursday and did the tech edit of it. And then when I woke up on Thursday, I had it ready. And then we posted this. I, I think we posted the first tutorial like on a Thursday after a Monday release of WatchKit. And then we had videos going out like the following week or something like that. So... Um, yeah, I definitely enjoy living on the bleeding edge of technology like that. It's pretty cool. I, I've uh, the last few months been teaching iOS development at a local code school here, and I've just been having a lot of fun with it. Just showing, especially people who are completely new to the whole world of programming, uh, taking them from not being able to do anything to being able to create something that springs from an idea in their head and seeing how excited they get about it has been pretty fun and fulfilling. And I think it's cool stuff that you guys get to do. Yeah, it's definitely rewarding seeing people when they finally start to get a subject and feel like, all right, I'm finally getting this now. So I'm going to dust off my evil capitalist hat. You know, you have the podcast, you have the blog, you have the conference. I'm curious how you maximize the marketing opportunities with those. That's not the area that we're the best at. (laughs) We're trying to get better at that kind of thing. One thing we're hoping to do in the future is have more related, I think Greg and Mick came up with this idea of more related content where we have a theme week, like maybe it's WatchKit week, and on the podcast we talk about WatchKit, on the blog we talk about WatchKit, and maybe something else too. But now everything's kind of a little bit separate at this time. Yeah, I think with the podcast open, like with books and tutorials, it's sort of written material. And then I think when the video tutorial started and the podcast started, it, you kind of start to spread out your audience a little bit more because maybe there's people who only listen to the, I can't imagine this is the case, but maybe there's people who only listen to the podcast. Maybe there's people who only watch the videos and don't read the site tutorials. So I think one of the things I always tried to do was to, when I had a video, for example, I would try to reference a site tutorial or if I'm doing a final pass edit on a site tutorial and we have a video on the same topic, then to kind of cross link them and say, just because people do have different learning styles. And it's nice to say, you just watch this video demo of me showing you how to set up a core data stack. But if you'd like it in a written form, you want to read about it, then here's a post about it. Here's one of the books we have about it and so on. But I think it's important to try to get your audience, because it may be segmented by sort of medium, but to try to bring them together a little bit more. And then, um, like you said, now with the conference and, I don't know, 3D Oculus versions of Nick on your screen, who knows what's coming up, but to try and tie them all together a little bit more, I think is important. Yeah, I think as well, because Ray did such a good job initially at being like one of the first people to, to be blogging about this subject, which is, you know, why the blog took off in the first place. And also the high quality of those original tutorials and how we've maintained that and even stepped it up a gear as the site's grown and we've got this really strict editing process, which means that we, like, we consistently put out great content. I think that as a side effect has built a brand. So whenever we, anything comes out that's got raywendelit.com associated with it, anybody who's familiar with the site knows what to expect. So I think a lot of the stuff at the point now is it's almost marketing itself. Yeah, we have the guiding principle of trying to keep everything we do high quality that kind of ties everything together. It can be very frustrating for an author working with such a a tight ship when it comes to editing because an FPE who is the final person but also the initial person that an an, an author will work with, and that could be an experienced author or a a new author, like they're the ones that that give the author the go-ahead to start writing, and that could come quickly or that could actually take quite a while to get to because there will be several iterations of the sample project. There will be several iterations of the outline and what's going to go into the tutorial. And that's even before they've been, you know, given the go ahead to start writing. So, but all this leads to putting out, you know, quality content that, that the readers enjoy and know what to expect. What's the difference between writing a tutorial for sort of mainstream layout type iOS apps and games? 
is is there a major difference between writing those tutorials or are they mostly the same? There, there are a few differences. The most important thing that we look for in our gaming tutorials is the game has got to be fun. I've seen some people in the past submit games that demonstrate an API or something like that, but the game's just not fun. Maybe it doesn't even have sound effects or the art looks terrible. And so we always try to put a little more polish into the game so it's actually something that when you're done making it, you can feel proud of it and you can show it to your wife or your coworker or something like that. And so usually what we have people do when they're working on a game is they just make it with programmer art at first because that's the fastest way for development. And then when they're done, we get somebody to make them real nice art for it, which is usually my wife, Vicky. I'm lucky enough to, she's a graphic artist. And so she's, she does a lot of art for our tutorials on the site. And so she kind of pretties it up and we, you know, make sure there's sound effects and the, the game controls are good. And, uh, and yeah, I go from there. But other than, than that, the making the game fun and polished, it's, it's a similar process. We have the same kind of style of writing game tutorials as we do writing app tutorials. What's the course or tutorial on the website that you're most proud of? I would say our video tutorials on the site, I'm really proud of. We just started that about a year ago. And Greg and Mick have made a ton of them on there. And I think they're, they're pretty good, especially if you're the type of person who prefers to learn visually uh, and via videos. Personally, I'm not. I'm more of a, I prefer to read via text and books and so on, but I recognize that I'm probably in the minority these days. I think more people want to learn via videos, which is why we started that section. I'm really happy with how the videos have been turning out. Um, but as far as books go, I think out of all the books we've made, my favorite so far is iOS Games by Tutorials. I just think it demonstrates a lot of uh, best practices with our writing style and the games we make in the book are, I think, all pretty polished and fun. I think also Marin Todorov's recent iOS Animations by Tutorials turned out really great. He actually helped us learn a lot of things about making good tutorials that we've recently incorporated into Tutorial Team Guide. He did a great job on that. All right. Are, are there any other things that we should discuss that we didn't dig into about tutorials and business that we got here? I don't think so. And anything, Gregor Mick? I was going to give the backstory of, because I know who it was that suggested the conference. <laughs> Go ahead. So, well, well, it was Matt Galloway that, that suggested Rayport on a conference. And I'll tell you why. It's because we were actually at iOS Dev UK, which is like the biggest um, iOS developer conference in the UK, as you can probably guess from the name. And that was 2013. And there was quite a few RayWendelit.com team members giving talks there. And Chris, the guy that puts it on, was making jokes if he was in the session. And Matt, at the end of his talk, he had like five minutes left after the Q&A. So he was just having a bit of banter with the audience. And he was asking people like if they knew the site and the hands would go up and did they like the site and so on. And then he just threw out the question, if Ray put on a conference, how many would go? And like half the hands in the room went up. So that night, me and Matt went out for a beer. Matt emailed Ray and said, you know, you should put on a conference. Although we pr- proposed the name Raycon, but obviously Ray didn't buy into that and changed it to Ardway <laughs> Defcon. But that, that's, uh, that's where it originally came from. Well, today in the Slack group, because the uh, conference announcement went out today for the tickets, um, WenderConf has also r- risen up in the charts. Just putting that one out there, for maybe for next year. Or it's too late for 2016, but maybe for 2017. <laughs> yeah, I like it. Yeah, me too. All right, let's go ahead and dig into some picks. Andrew, do you want to start us off with picks? Sure, I've got two picks today. The first one is, I'm not condoning, or well, I'm not um, signing off on this because I don't know how good it is. I haven't tried it out yet, and there have been some questions raised. But anyway, uh, this past week, uh, Microsoft open-sourced their, it's it's basically, it's called WinObjective-C, and it's an Objective-C, it's Objective-C support for Windows development, including um, support for all of the iOS APIs. So you can port your iOS a- your iOS apps to Windows, and you can also write regular Windows apps using the existing Windows APIs using Objective-C. It's still very early and rough, but just the very fact that Microsoft is supporting Objective-C, writing their own versions of the iOS APIs, and the whole thing is open source on GitHub uh, kind of blows my mind. And if you told me that five years ago, I would have thought it was hilarious and obviously not going to happen. So um, that's Win Objective-C by Microsoft. My second pick... 
I think I can do because Mike's not here this week, but Mike's latest Friday Q&A, it's actually from a couple of weeks ago now, but it's about tagged pointer strings on, I th- I don't know if they added this in, in iOS 8, but on uh, OS 10, 10.10, they moved over to using tagged pointers for some NS strings, and he just dives into how this is implemented, and it's a super technical article, uh, like he's really good at and it's not the kind of information that's really useful for the average developer but i love reading this stuff and he did a really good job with it so those are my picks cool i'll go ahead and put out a couple of picks i've been interviewed on a couple of podcasts lately so i'm just going to mention those if you're interested one of them i did last night they released it this morning it was the web platform podcast and uh you can find that. I'll put a link to it in the show notes. But it was a fun talk. We talked about personal branding as freelancers and as employees and how to do it and why to do it and how to do it the right way and, you know, some of the approaches that you can use. And it was it was a lot of fun, great conversation. And so I'm, I'm going to pick that. I was also interviewed on uh, Developer on Fire, and I'll put a link to that in the show notes as well. Uh, that was also a fun discussion. Uh, we talked about the podcasts. We talked about some of the other things that uh, I have going on. And then I'm also going to pick uh, Skype has the Inside Out. If you've seen the Disney movie, they have the characters, the uh, joy, anger, fear, disgust, and sadness as emoji or emoticons or whatever you want to call them. And so uh, anyway, and they're animated. So, it's, so that's kind of fun. So when somebody says something that's kind of sad, instead of putting a frowny face in, uh, in anymore, I put sadness in, which is anyway, I just think it's fun. So if you're on Skype, check that out. And yeah, those are my picks. Uh, Ray, do you have some picks for us? Sure. I have two picks. My first is a semi-new little blog by Jake Marsh called Little Bites of Cocoa. What he does is every single day he posts a short little post on some bite-sized tips and tricks for iOS development. And he's had some really neat things in the past like mixing Sprite Kit with UI Kit or making chainable methods in Swift. And recently he's been doing a lot of quick looks at various APIs so I definitely recommend everybody follow that for a bunch of useful tips. Again, that's Little Bites of Cocoa by Jake Marsh. And then the second thing is just a blog post. I thought since we were talking about blogging today and, and our blog, I thought this might be interesting to people who are looking to do something similar. It's a post on ghost.org by Bell Beth Cooper titled The Insanely Slow Road to Building a Blog and Why Most People Give Up. And basically it's talking about how when you first start a blog, it can be very demotivating because you spend all this time working on your first posts and you put them up there and you're expecting to get all these comments and retweets, but actually you get complete silence. I know that I had that experience when I was first started. And the article talks about how the trick is you just got to keep posting even when you feel like no one's paying any attention and especially after when you feel like giving up. And uh, so I just thought that would be useful for anybody looking to start a blog. Awesome. Greg, do you have some picks for us? I do also have two picks, staying on the training theme as well. Uh, my first pick is a book. It's called What the Best College Teachers Do, which is not quite maybe relevant because I'm not a college teacher. I read it anyway, but I think like programming, like if you work in Swift and Objective-C, but learning about, say, a prototype-based language or a functional language really lets you see your own language in a new way. And so I think reading about college teaching is sort of a new lens to look at videos and tutorials and how to do that kind of thing better. And the interesting thing to me is they focus a lot on things like classroom engagement and evaluation. And those are two things that when you write tutorials and you do videos, you it's very tough to do because you can't reach through the screen and quiz the people, make sure they understood. And we don't really have tests that people take. But so reading about how other people deal with that, I think helps shape how I write tutorials and write challenges and work on videos and things like that. So that's my pick for sort of people doing training. And then my second pick is for people who are learning. And it's just a quiz. There are all kinds of these all over the web. But it's just one of those quizzes on what's your learning style. And I think it's important to know how you learn, whether you, like Ray mentioned, you like reading books or you like watching videos or you want to have someone stand next to you and explain things. And because so many people are self-directed learners with this kind of stuff with technology, you really have to look out for yourself. And so Learning about how you learn best, I think, is important to figure that out early, and then that'll help you learn stuff uh, going forward into the future. All right. Mick, do you have some picks for us? Yeah, I also have two picks. Just to, you know, we, We've bashed on it already about consistency, and there you go, right through that. Everybody's got two picks. The first one is WatchKit Resources from Brian Gillingham. When I started working with WatchKit back in November, 
like Brian's site, Five Minute Watch Kit, was one of the first sites that I came across that had some really good content, short blog posts on. Uh, it was mainly on issues that it came across and workarounds and things like that. And then a few weeks ago, he transitioned that from a blog. Although I think he still does post occasionally into a email newsletter. Um, if you're familiar with iOS Dev Weekly, it's very similar to that, but it's just focused on watchOS and WatchKit and all things Apple Watch. Um, and you can find that at watchkitresources.com. And the second one is a game. Uh, and I'm excited about this because it's only just arrived this week, but I backed it. Um, well, I think it was about February, uh, which is Exploding Kittens, um, which is the most backed Kickstarter project ever. And it's from Matthew Inman, who you might recognize from The Oatmeal, and Ellen Lee and Shane Small, who both work at uh, Xbox. And it's this really cool card game. It's a bit like Russian roulette, where you, you every so often you'll come across an exploding kitten, and there are all these really amusing um, cards that you can play to defuse the exploding kitten. But if you know Matthew Inman's style, um, it's, it's very clever, the, the humor and the comedy in it. So it's, uh, it's very good. And you've got two decks as well. You've got a... A, a normal deck and a not safe for work edition, uh, which is great as well. That's funny. I just want to follow this up. I'm going to point you to a couple of episodes that we've done recently on other shows that are related to this. We talked to Brianna Dick on the Freelancer Show, and she talked about teaching and learning. Specifically, she coaches people about building courses, so uh, that's a good resource. And one of her students was on the next week, Marie Poulin. Um, and she also talked a lot about that along with, you know, sort of being serious and consistent in your business. And then the other episode actually came out when this one comes out. Uh, the other came out yesterday. Uh, we talked to Greg Pollock from Code School. So if you're, and that was on JavaScript Jabber. So if you want to go check those episodes out, we'll put links to all of those in the show notes as well. If people want to know more about what you folks are doing over at uh, raywenderlich.com, uh, what should they do? Where should they go? The best place is our website, raywenderlich.com. You can see all our latest posts there. And also you might be interested in checking out our conference, which ticket sales just opened today at rwdevcon.com. Also the podcast where we, we have lots of exciting development things to discuss, Jake and I. Yeah, plus one to that. I, that's a... I don't listen to very many podcasts because I work from home and I don't drive very often, but I, I, I do listen to your podcast and partly because I'm a friend of Jake's, but, uh, you guys do a great job and I always, I always enjoy the, the people you have on and the stuff you talk about. Thanks so much. Very cool. We'll, uh, go ahead and wrap up the show. Thank you guys for coming. Thank you. My pleasure. Thanks yeah, guys. Great time. Thanks. Hosting and bandwidth provided by the Blue Box Group. Check them out at bluebox.net. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y.com to learn more. Would you like to join the conversation with the iFreaks and their guests? Want to support the show? We have a forum that allows you to join the conversation and support the show at the same time. You can sign up at iFreaksShow.com slash forum. 